Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to our weekly security seminar. Uh, I wanted to start off today with just a little bit of a, of a bit of background. Uh, I'm sure all of you at one point or another have heard of the National Security Agency. Um, as an agency, uh, it is, doesn't have a tremendously long history, but it goes back um, certainly uh, well into the last century. And at the time that it stood up and for most of its existence, uh, one of the primary functions of that agency was in cryptology, and still is, and that's the making and breaking of ciphers and codes. Uh, another big function of the agency is in the area of uh, signals intelligence, of protecting communications, and uh, also being able to uh, detect communications from adversaries. And that's really the way it went for most of its existence. In fact, 50 years ago, the fact that the agency existed in its name were themselves classified. Uh, people, people weren't even able to uh, utter the name of the agency uh, at first. But what's been interesting is the transformation that has occurred over the last two to three decades where what has happened in cyber and computing has become more and more important uh, because we use computers more and more in defense, in government, in, in industry as you well know. And so this has become a major part of uh, the agency's mission, uh, so much so that uh, on October 1st, uh, a, new, uh, uh, a new directorate within the agency was stood up uh, for cyber. Um, what's also happened over these years, going from an agency that was secret and you couldn't say even its name, is we've gotten to the point now where we have many uh, distinguished researchers within the agency who are going out and participating in the community. They're part of open source efforts, they give talks, they teach classes, they, they uh, meet with us on a regular basis. Uh, you've seen some of the products that have come out of some of these things such as uh, SE Linux and, and Ghidra. If you haven't, you will. Uh, many other kinds of things. Uh, our speaker today represents uh, this leading edge. Uh, someone who's involved with the new uh, Cyber Directorate somebody who's been involved in the open source community, who's taught courses, who's out lecturing, and we're very pleased today to welcome Dr. Celeste Paul. Thank you. <laughs> All right, well, good afternoon, everyone. My name is Celeste Paul, and I am from the National Security Agency. Uh, today, I want to talk to you about some research that I've done over the past few years with some colleagues of mine that has focused on understanding mental health and cognitive stress in some of our um, sensitive cybersecurity operations. But there's all types of work that we do at the agency. This is just one slice, and I'm sure um, there will be more opportunities for you to learn about what we do as we come out and speak to universities <laughs> like here. So first, a little bit about myself. Um, I am a senior researcher in NSA research. I've been at NSA for the past eight, I'm going into nine years um, at the agency. And before I was at the agency, I spent a lot of time in industry and academia. So I haven't been in government my entire career, just part of it. And so that experience was really interesting um, to transition from the outside world to the inside world because, yeah, there's all the secrets, but there's also differences in what we value. So in the commercial sector, we value the return on investment. We, re we value money, where in the security industry, specifically for the government, we value security or we value the national security or secrets. And so it's just a little bit different to think about how your work applies because your motivations aren't always the same. My PhD is in human-centered computing, and if you're familiar with HCI, human-computer interaction, it's very similar. HCC just happens to be the new NSF term um, for HCI. Uh, they, they came out with a, a major program a couple of years ago. Um, if you're not as familiar with HCI or human-centered computing, it is an equal mix of computer science, psychology, and design. And I have pretty good coverage in all three of those areas. So I have a strong cognitive psychology background. I have a strong uh, computer science, especially from a systems perspective background. But then I also spent a lot of time as a human factors engineer and user experience designer to understand the user end of things. 
things. And that's where you generate a lot of appreciation for empathy. So not necessarily what users say they want, but understanding how or why they make mistakes using the technology that we provide them. Because those mistakes are often vulnerabilities in broader systems. And when you're studying security, you want to know where those vulnerabilities are. They're not always in the technology. Sometimes they're in the people. And that has really been the focus of what my research has been, at least for the past decade, understanding the role of people in technology, but then not just as a widget in the system, but as a participant. Um, a lot of usable security research has focused on end users and trying to make security more usable or easier to use, but there are a lot of technical people who use security products. There are a lot of technical people who are part of the security system. And so what I like to say is hackers are people too, and those are the types of people that I've been studying at the agency. So when I started this research, um, we had a concern about how people were taking on mission or taking on uh, certain aspects of their job and, and expressing it in their work. So when you're stressed or when you're burned out, you're not going to work as effectively. And how this translates in the commercial sector is, well, maybe you don't produce as many widgets or maybe you don't make as much money, but when you're working in national security, the consequences are slightly different. Because all of a sudden, if you make a mistake or if you have a bad day um, on the job, you might miss something that's really critical that could you know, save somebody's life or um, save an attack on the nation. And so we're really concerned about people working as optimal as possible, but not as as robots but as people we care about their emotional well-being and right as we were wrapping up this work and um, starting to socialize it to the external information security community all of a sudden there was a lot of additional concern or additional work from the infosec community that said hey we have a mental health issue our people are overworked our people are burning out and we don't have enough information security professionals in the industry in order to to really handle people transitioning to other roles we need to figure out ways for better care and feeding of our people so that they stay in industry as we build up our competency um, by the way, I'm from the National Security Agency. I know that's been mentioned a few times. That might be uh, one of the more interesting and exciting aspects of my talk here. And um, SPAF uh, did a great uh, overview and intro of the agency. So if you're unfamiliar with NSA, um, we have two primary missions. The uh, bread and butter mission is the signals intelligence mission. And that is basically where we go out and do foreign intelligence, collect signals. We you know, break the codes and use that information in order to produce intelligence that protects the country. We have a second mission, and that is the cybersecurity mission. So NSA is responsible for the cybersecurity of what we call national security systems. And these are systems that are critical to national security. Um, they're systems that are involved in the intelligence community, which is the collection of agencies that do different types of intelligence, or any um, additional uh, critical infrastructure that support those systems. So this would include any uh, contracting companies, I won't name them by name, but we work a lot with universities who have cleared, um, uh, cleared networks or cleared personnel. We work with a lot of commercial companies that have cleared networks or cleared um, personnel. And so it's the protection of that part of this, uh, the system as well. Um, Cybersecurity has always been a part of our tradition. It has definitely evolved over the past 30 years as the mission has evolved as well. And so just starting in one October, we stood up a brand new directorate for cybersecurity. And what's interesting about this directorate is that we are taking the defensive cybersecurity mission and blending it with our foreign intelligence mission so that we can better inform both sides of the mission. And this is really important because this um, basically helps us close any gaps that we haven't been able to find. So we're protecting ourselves, that's the national security systems, but we also have outreach to industry partners to um, help release uh, vulnerabilities and other types of information that we think are valuable for the rest of the community to know in order to secure the broader information security community, not just ourselves. 
So this is very exciting. Um, I am transitioning into that directorate now in a role that is focused on emerging technologies. And so I'm taking my job as a um, security and HCI researcher and using that to help inform what technologies we should be paying attention to. So what uh, unintended or unanticipated uses of new or existing technology that might have some type of impact on cybersecurity. Um, this is really exciting and interesting because this is where we get to forecast how some new technologies might be used before they're really institutionalized and then provide recommendations both in terms of mission, but some of those recommendations come out um, into industry uh, because they look to NSA as a technical expert for cryptography and cybersecurity. So today I'm gonna to focus more on my work that has to do with stress and cybersecurity operations. And so we'll start with a definition. Um, there are a couple of definitions of stress. This is probably the easiest to operationalize, especially for the type of work that we were focused on. And stress is a physical and emotional reaction to adverse events. Um, stress is not necessarily a bad or negative thing. It's just simply a reaction that we have to something that we didn't anticipate or we didn't expect. We experience stress every day, whether it's a loud noise, whether it's compounding because um, you have a test and you feel unprepared or you are prepared. Uh, it's, it's not a negative. Uh, there are different classes or types of stress. So acute stress is that temporary fight or flight response. So that's the, the feeling that you get if you hear a loud noise or you're, if you're suddenly shocked. Your heart rate increases, maybe you start to sweat a little bit, but usually that reaction subsides once the threat goes away. Um, episodic stress is where you have repetitive stress with little time to recover. This might be acute stress events where you're constantly um, being stimulated or uh, overwhelmed by certain types of events, or they might not necessarily be acute, but it's a constant low-grade stress that you just don't get a moment to breathe. Then we get into chronic stress. Chronic stress is when you have enduring situations. And this is usually whenever you have very serious situations where you have physical and emotional threats to yourself. So this includes living in a war zone or living in poverty or living in a uh, abusive relationship where no matter if the immediate threat is gone, there's still that constant um, threat to your personhood. And that can have physical effects on, on your body. Burnout tends to be affected by this episodic and chronic stress. So we are very resilient as, as humans. We can recover from those acute stress events. It's when those events begin to compound that we don't have enough time to recover, whether they're emotional or physical, or they start to have impacts on our physical or emotional health that's whenever we start to see effects of burnout. That's whenever we see people giving up or making mistakes or looking for um, other ways out. So stress can be applied to a lot of different situations. I gave some examples of relationships and living situations. I'm going to focus mostly on work-related stress. And this stress tends to come from demanding jobs where you have little control. So it's not necessarily a bad job. You can just have a very difficult, complex job. Um, or there's a imbalance in the effort and reward. Sometimes you see this in compensation packages, you do more work than what you're paid for, but that's not the only type of imbalance that I'm talking about. Um, there are other intangible um, rewards that you can get from the type of work that you do that feed into that. And this will make more sense as, as, as I go through some of these later examples. So the way stress and work interact is that with work, we're really concerned about productivity. We're concerned about how much you can do in the amount of time and the amount of mistakes uh, or quality of work that you do. So this is usually a, a, you know, effectiveness and efficiency. And so the different factors that stress can uh, impact would include fatigue, which is this physical mental feeling of tiredness. So it's both your body and your mind feeling tired. Um, it can be exhibited through frustration, which is anxiety and annoyance over a lack of control. So again, we have this theme of control whenever it comes to your work that's going to be very important. 
And then there's just the cognitive work aspect. So how much mental effort is necessary to do the job? None of these are negative. You can have high fatigue, high frustration, and cognitive work. The question is, are these factors in balance with what you get out of the result of your work? So then the question is, what is it about hacking that makes it so stressful? Why is the information security community struggling with this where we, you know, there's stress in other, um, in other industries, but just not to the degree for the type of work that we do? Well, hacking in general is a very special type of activity. They usually involve very complex problems. Um, yeah, you can operationalize and, and use any suite of tools to basically you know, punch a couple of buttons and boom, magic happens. But really, it's the complex and creative problem solving that is unique to that hacking environment. It's also extremely unpredictable. If it was predictable, we'd be able to automate it away, but we haven't been able to do that yet. So there are a lot of factors in a very complex system, anywhere from networking to the machine and tools that you have to the machine and tools that are on the target box um, of the network that you might be doing penetration testing or vulnerability analysis on. Uh, there are a lot of things that can go wrong no matter how many times you practice. There's also a high aspect of high, re uh, high risk and high reward. You, especially in the case of penetration testing, where you might be going in as a third party in order to assess somebody's network, you don't want it to be obvious that you're going in and assessing their network and you, because you want to be able to fully um, do your assessment, but then also the aspect of surprise and covertness is just part of the, the red teaming aspect. If they knew that you were there, they would shore up until you got, you've, you've gone. And so there's this aspect of you can't get caught, um, especially whenever you're starting to look at national security or um, government-based operations, those risks are much higher but you hope that there is an equivalent reward. So the risk, the cost of making a mistake isn't just a matter of losing dollars. The cost of making a mistake could include a loss of intelligence that could protect the country or loss of life, which is really the worst case scenario. So we have a lot of different types of cybersecurity operations um, at the agency, and we studied a particular type of operation that tended to have a lot of on-net presence, um, and that was very time and uh, cognitive intensive for a specific period of time, because you can have longitudinal um, you know, defensive operations, which are mostly situation awareness, or you could have something that's more interactive, such as penetration testing or red teaming or, or um, vulnerability analysis. And so we looked at um, some of the more complex operations because that's where we were the most concerned. They tend to be the higher risk, high reward operations, but that's also where we saw a lot more of uh, the cognitive workload or the stress or the burnout in terms of our operators. So NSA has multiple locations. We are in Washington, D.C. We also have locations in Georgia, Texas, Hawaii, and Colorado. Um, we do the type of network operations that I studied in this presentation at Washington, Georgia, Texas, and Hawaii. And all of these operators go through the same type of training program. Um, they work slightly different missions, but they pretty much are using the same tools and techniques uh, when, when they're going out and doing their network operations. Overall, we studied 126 different operators, so that's 126 different people, and we collected data from 361 operations. So we had some operators who only provided us one data point, and then we had a couple of operators who provided us um, three or four data points. And so these were just different operations that they would run and they would provide us some feedback, and I'll tell you what that feedback was in a, in a moment. NSA is a blended agency, so in addition to having sharing a commander with US Cyber Command, which um, you may or may not have heard of, of before, um, we also have a lot of military personnel who are assigned to NSA. And so the operators came from both the civilian population like myself and then also military population, which would be the Air Force, uh, Army, Navy, or Marine Corps. 
Something else that's important to note about the operations themselves is that the average operation lasted about five hours plus or minus. And so that just gives you a sense of how much work. So if you think about an eight hour workday, so if any of you have worked summer internships or anything like that, a nine to five job, um, depending on what you do all day, you may be very tired at the end of the day or you might be feeling refreshed because you had time to pace yourself as you were doing work. This work lasted on average five hours of being on net and doing your thing. So just think about what uh, type of costs or tax that might have on yourself if you were uh, highly invested in an activity for about that period. So um, I keep forgetting the board's not behind me. <laughs> A way of measuring cognitive work, um, we wanted to use a very easy to execute survey. So we were working in a secure space that had um, sensitive information. And if you have any experience working at the agency as an intern, you know that we're all cleared. There are no cell phones. There are no smartwatches. There are no cameras. There are no recording devices of any type. Um, that makes it very difficult to do human subjects research because usually you like to record people so that you can review the, um, the videos or remember what they said. And we don't really had that, we didn't really have that option whenever we built the study. The other thing that about this study was that we were studying actual operations. These people were doing their jobs. This wasn't a laboratory environment. This wasn't an exercise that was set up as a simulation. This wasn't a group of people where we kind of set them off on a toy problem. They were working the mission. We could not affect mission. So that also impacted what methods we had available to study. So we couldn't go in there and stop them every 10 minutes and say, hey, what are you doing? Can you explain uh, what it is that you did? How are you feeling right now? Can you take this 100-point survey and you know, give me some feedback? Uh, that just was not happening. Um, one, they would have kicked me out. Um, but two, it would have impacted mission because you're constantly interrupting somebody who's doing a highly cognitive, highly complex, highly creative task that, oh, by the way, is high risk, high reward. Uh, that, that just wasn't an option. So we devised a, a new methodology that combines a couple of existing measures in a way that we could potentially measure some of the impacts of operations. And so we call this the Cyber Operations Stress Survey. And so there are two main parts to it. We wanted to make sure that we could capture how people felt right before the operation and then immediately measure the impact of the operation after they were done with it. So people come to these operations bringing their own stress. And so if we didn't baseline that stress before the operation itself, we wouldn't know if we were measuring just a stressful person or the amount of stress that the operation induced. And so it was very important to take that pre-measure. However, there's some things that you can't really do a pre-post on, such as cognitive work, because you have to have, there is no baseline. It's, it's, it's an accumulated um, sort of metric. But there are things that you can measure, such as how tired are you before the operation? We run operations 24 seven. And so depending on what your schedule is, you may be more or less tired. Did you just come off of a break? You might be more refreshed. Did you just run an op yesterday? You might be less refreshed. Are you transitioning from day shift to night shift? How is that messing with your schedule? Did you just come into the office and you're ready to run your op? Or have you been in meetings for the past five hours and now you're going into your op? So those were all considerations that we had when we wanted to make sure that we knew what we were looking at when we collected this data. Something else that we collected um, before the operation began was their frustration level. And what's interesting is that we hadn't thought about um, baselining frustration until we ran our pilot study with a couple of people and realized how important frustration was to overall stress. Um, there are a lot of external factors that contribute to frustration. It could be your own personal situation. Maybe you just came out of an annoying meeting. Maybe the vending machine ran out of Diet Coke. Who knows? We got a lot of different reasons for external and internal frustration. We wanted to make sure that when we measured frustration, it was due to the operation and not due to some external environmental factor. 
We did care about those external factors because they were going to impact operations regardless. We just wanted to be able to separate out those effects so that we could properly explain them, but then also develop the right type of mitigation or intervention so that we fix the right problem and not necessarily throw a solution on the wall and hopefully it, it did something. Um, after the operation, that's whenever we started to collect more information about what it was that they were doing. So this included something that is called the NASA Task Load Index. This is a uh, summative um, measure that NASA developed that's been used throughout the human factors engineering community in order to measure different amounts of of uh, cognitive workload. And it has multiple factors. So we added fatigue to that because fatigue was not part of the um, TLX. But it's mental demand, physical demand, um, that refers more to uh, physical tiredness, time demand, which is the time pressure. Did you have enough time to complete your task? Self-assessment of overall performance, which is not the same thing as an objective measure of overall performance. So again, this is all internal measurements of how you feel about, um, about your work. Your general frustration level, the amount of effort or how hard you had to work in order to, to do the job. And then we also added a few other aspects, um, such as team synergy, because sometimes operators would work in partners, or they might have an analyst that had subject matter expertise uh, helping them. So um, lo and behold, we found that hacking is stressful. And honestly, we weren't that surprised by that. What we were surprised about were the amounts that it was stressful. So this is where the baseline became really, really important because any one of these numbers by themselves, they, it, they don't really tell you anything. But how much it changed on average across those 360 operations or those 126 operators, that is significant. So in terms of fatigue, um, all of the different types of operations, and they ranged in length and ranged in purpose um, in tools, there was, a, uh, there was a change of about 16%. And that's pretty significant. I'm not too worried about that because again, these operations took a long time and they were fairly complex. So you would expect some amount of fatigue. It's just whether or not is this high or low? Well, that's a good question. Um, we also saw that operator frustration increased about 12%. Uh, that was also pretty interesting. Whether or not that's high or low, that's a good question because again, these are difficult, complex operations. Perhaps the amount of fatigue and the amount of frustration that we see is appropriate for the amount of work. But that's something that we wanted to dig into because we know that fatigue, frustration, and some of this cognitive work contribute to stress, which contribute to burnout. And is it just that you know hacking is stressful, computer operations is stressful, and there's nothing that we can do about it? Or can we tease apart some of the things that we can control or we can manage so that we can help bring stress down and manage burnout? So here are um, the rest of the measures for the NASA Task Load Index. And again, these numbers by themselves are informative, but they don't really tell you anything out of context. So we can see the amount of mental demand. So we, we have a sense of how mentally demanding the operations were. We were we were really interested to see that physical demand was so high. We expected it to be in the onesies, twosies, and it came up to four or five, sometimes reaching higher. We suspect this is actually because the operations were so long and people had to be paying attention in their seat in front of the monitor for so long that um, just sitting, the physical sitting at the desk had a physical toll on their body. Um, time pressure was relatively low, performance was relatively high. Uh, that's good because these were high-risk, high-reward operations. Um, effort, again, in that middle part. And then frustration, again, was in that middle part. Um, one thing that I'll note that is useful about these numbers, not immediately, but for future research, is that we now know um, how much cognitive workload our generic operations uh, uh, generate. And so if we were to design any type of intervention or change something about our environment, whether it's training or whether it's tools or, or whatever it might be, the chairs in the office, we would be able to see that reflected 
in the TLX. And so there is value in collecting this information, even if we don't have um, a more specific measurement like we do pre-post. Uh, question? Yeah, I'm just wondering, do you have any sort of baselines of these in, for other tasks? Yes, so um, the NASA TLX, uh, so I guess the question was, do we have baseline measurements for other types of tasks? So the TLX has been used across a wide variety of tasks, not just information security, not just computer tasks. Um, the TLX has been used in a couple of information security tasks, including situation awareness, networked events, uh, vulnerability analysis, and a few other things. Uh, the, the citation at the bottom of the page, and I have the citation also on a lighter slide, has references to a handful of those. Um, there is a way of calculating a raw and modified like combined TLX score in order to be able to compare it to other types of studies. And our TLX score was very similar to some of those other vulnerability analysis or network defense activities. So um, the other interesting part about the TLX is that all of these factors tend to be highly cor correlated. Um, performance is an inverted metric, so imagine that's flipped over um, for the sake of this discussion. But as, say, mental demand goes up, so does physical demand, um, time pressure, performance would drop, effort and frustration. They're meant to be linked. This is how the, uh, the, um, the survey itself was validated, but it also shows that there are nuances, but they're all part of the same framework or the same system. What's interesting about uh, what we found was, yes, as mental demand went up, so did all of these other things. As physical demand went up, so did all of these other things. But if you look at the performance line there, the horizontal performance line, which I don't know if my mouse shows up on that, you can see that performance does not correlate to increases in mental demand, physical demand, time pressure, or um, we also have effort over there. Meaning that no matter how much mental effort or time pressure or physical demand, they still put in the work necessary in order to achieve the results. The only place that this does not fit is whenever you start looking at frustration. As performance dropped or as frustration increased, that's whenever we first see drops in performance. So frustration was really the only thing that could impact self-assessments of performance. And we found this really interesting. So it didn't matter how hard the task was, it didn't matter how hard you worked, they always got the job done. But if something caused some level of anxiety or lack of control, that's whenever we started to see self-assessments of performance go way down. We do not have the links of the actual performance. Measuring performance in these operations is somewhat nuanced. But if you think about the mental health aspect of it, it doesn't necessarily mean, it doesn't necessarily matter if you do achieve the result, if you feel like you didn't do a good job. And the people in these jobs take their jobs very seriously. They take a lot of pride in it because they realize what's at stake and they wanna do the best that they can because they also know the risks. And so when they feel like they did not do a good job, they take that personally and they really turn it into this negative emotional energy that we've been trying to figure out a way of managing. And the reason why this is so important is this concept of locus of control. And this is the extent to which a person feels that they have control over the outcomes or events in their lives. And this is probably one of the most uh, critical factors when it comes to stress in certain aspects of mental health. If you think about anything, if you're living in poverty, something that you can't control. If you're living in a war zone, something you can't control. If you're in a bad relationship, Often it's not necessarily something that you control. These are all stressors that um, uh, compound over time and start to take emotional and physical tolls on your body. And this can be manifested in a lot of different ways. So um, here is an example of an operator before an operation. Um, he was very irritated, stressed, and annoyed. So this was not necessarily a result of the operation. This is how he went into the operation. Um, I am happy to report that his uh, frustration went way down after the operation. Um, 
usually a lot of the operators, uh, they, I mean, they enjoy what they do. They're good at what they do. That's why they're there. Uh, and when they get to do what they love, it helps calm them down. Um, I forget exactly the reason why his frustration was really high. I think it had something to do with a certain meeting that this person was in um, beforehand. But this is an example of an external factor. So this doesn't have to do with the act of hacking itself, but the environment in which we do information security impacting how he's going in to do his job. So. I really made a point of being able to separate those external factors from the operation to the factors that are part of the operation itself to be able to find these things. So the operation itself, if you do a good job, it's still hard, it's still complex, it's still going to be difficult to do, it's still going to generate some amount of cognitive work. But those external factors, whether it's a meeting, whether it's traffic, whether it's the time of day, those things we have a little bit more control over. And control is really important, especially if they're things that give you that sense that you have control over your life, even if it's minor. Can you pick the chair that you have? Maybe. Can you pick the pen that you have? Maybe. Some people have their favorite station that they always like to go to, and as long as you give them that choice of being able to wear a sit, maybe that's all they need for the day. Um, there are a lot of different things thinking that, that can go into um, just giving someone that sense of control when they're working in such an unpredictable environment. Another way I like to think about this is Maslow's hierarchy of needs. So some of you may have seen this and um, there are a couple of classes that this could have been covered in. And it's not necessarily the pyramid that I want to point out, although I think that those aspects are important too. It's the difference between the deficiency needs and the growth needs. So deficiency needs are things that you need and that you will just go out and acquire as much as you have or as much as you can until you reach that minimum threshold of I have met the requirements, I can now move on. You can't do anything unless you have enough to eat or enough to drink. You don't care about security. You don't care about friendship. You need water. You will get water until you have enough water and then worry about those next things. You can't think about anything else until you are healthy. Once you're healthy, then you can move up onto the pyramid. It, it's not quite as simplistic as that, but it's a good model for understanding requirements. And we're all engineers here and we understand how requirements flow up or down. The growth needs are somewhat different. You aren't necessarily lacking in anything, but you constantly want more and more and more. So this is how we become more of a person rather than just making sure we stay human. And this is where dignity and freedom, uh, acknowledgement by your peers or uh, status become more and more important until you reach that self-actualization where you're actually going through personal growth periods. We can apply this to information security as well. We have those deficiency needs, but then we also have those growth needs. We have things that we absolutely need to do our jobs, otherwise we cannot do our jobs. And if our jobs are the thing that we want to do and love most and we can't do our job, that takes away agency and that takes away control. And if we take away control, that's whenever we start to get stressed and that's where a lot of sources of burnout. And so I, you know, I tried to map what I thought some of these deficiency needs in terms of information security and where they would lie. So for example, equipment, tools, and access. If you have bad network access, if you can't access GitHub, if it takes forever to download an ISO image, you know, that's, those are really basic needs. And if you can't even do that, how are you supposed to do the creative work that you were paid to do? Um, same thing with authority, policy, and support. This is especially true in the government or especially true at NSA. We have a lot of laws that govern how, um, how we can do our jobs. And we really rely on them being supportive of the type of work that we do. We always want to work within the law and we need someone to develop policy so that we know exactly where the lanes are so that we stay within the lanes. Um, there's also, you know, having respect amongst team members. If you work with people who 
it's not that they have to be your best friend, but if they don't even respect the work that you do or if they backstab you, how are you supposed to get your job done whenever you're worried about your own sort of personal reputation? Once you get to that state that you feel like you have the things that you need to do your job and you have the support of your community, that's where the creativity and hacking comes in. That's whenever you can start building out your reputation, recognition, and respect. And that benefits more than just yourself. It benefits your organization. It benefits the community itself and legitimizes the type of work that you do. But then you get that personal achievement or um, having a mission that you believe in. And that's where we get into being able to be happy at our jobs, not just sufficient in our performance. I want to stress, stress that we can't necessarily eliminate a lot of these factors. Um, stress is natural, it's not a bad thing. It's just how re we react to um, factors in our environment. We can manage them by identifying them. Um, some of them we can eliminate, but not always. And so recognizing what factors are impacting our work what factors we can control and what factors we can't control but maybe manage and acknowledge will definitely help us manage our stress but then also help prevent burnout. And really, we, we want happy, healthy hackers, right? We want to grow an information security community that will continue to, uh, continue to meet our industry needs but we also wanna look out for the next generation of, of information security professionals so that they want to join this profession and then it's not one of those professions that suck the life out of you. So there are different techniques that you can mitigate stress. Um, I think of these both from the personal, so things that you can do for yourself, um, but then also from the organizational. So if you work in a team and are a team lead, if you end up being a CISO someday or owning a company. So from a personal perspective, if you haven't heard about mindfulness before, it's just a way of recognizing how you feel and what you think is affecting you. And there are a lot of different techniques that you can um, use in order to be present and pull yourself together. Uh, one really useful technique is three breaths, if you've heard of this technique before, where you just slowly take three breaths in and out and just try to focus inward in order to release that physical tension that you've been holding within yourself. Um, there are other meditation techniques that are useful too, but I think three breaths is probably one of the most, um, most effective because even if you have a distracted mind, the act of taking three breaths helps relieve some of that physical tension. And once that physical tension goes away, it's much easier to relax your mind. Um, sometimes it's really easy to get into a hole. If any of you have you know, had those 12-hour hacking sessions or maybe you've played capture the flag for a little bit too long, you're running hot, uh, you're feeling good now, but man, if you step away for five minutes, you're just going to crash. That's where having a buddy or having a spotter to say you need a moment to step back is really, really useful. And so hacking is a team sport. If you've ever played on a CTF team, uh, capture the flag team, you know that there, there is no I in team. No one person can really win it for all. All of the best hacking teams are large teams that have very specific skills, but they all work together. They don't chop it up into pieces. And so having that buddy to watch over you or you watching over your buddy is a good way of uh, helping to manage stress or to bring it back to yourself so that you can get into that mindfulness zone. Um, sometimes there are things that are outside of our control and no matter what you do, it's hard to remember that. And so if there's anything that you can really rem remember, it's that it will be all right and that there are people who've gone through this before and there are people that you can talk to. Uh, it's easier said than done because if you've ever been in that situation, it's really hard to, to pull back and realize that you're in that situation. But if you are the buddy, realize that there may be resources that you need to pass on to your friend because you're not reaching them. From an organizational uh, aspect, uh, creature comforts matter. And it has more to do 
to do with that control over your environment than anything else. If someone is complaining that their back hurts and you're making them sit at a desk for five to eight hours without moving, you should get them a better chair. Does it have to be a $1,500 Herman Miller? I don't know if it needs to go to that extent, but you know, maybe not a, a plastic stool from Ikea. I don't know, just throwing that out there. Um, also keep an eye on time. Time does matter and it's really easy to ramp up that adrenaline and keep going and going and going. You know, those 12 hour hacks, uh, hackathons, you do need breaks. Your brain needs a break. You, even if it's just for five minutes, even if it's just to you know, consume a couple of calories, your brain consumes lots and lots of sugar. Uh, it doesn't necessarily have to be candy, but something. Taking that mental break and resetting can help you go for much longer, but it also gives you that break so that the stress is not compounding, if you remember about stress. Also, remember who you hired and why. A lot of people in information security want to do information security. And this is true in software engineering as well. Sometimes we put our best engineers in management positions, and it's not necessarily that they would make good or bad managers. Did you ever think to ask that if they wanted to manage at all? Some people just want to do the job. And having job satisfaction is really important because that contributes also to that locus of control. You have control over the things that you do on a day-to-day -day basis. And so if you are ever in the position of hiring or promoting people, think about just because that person would be good at the job, would they really want to do that job? So I hope I've given you something to think about. Those are some things that we've been thinking about the agency in terms of information security and um, just mental health and stress in general. I think it's very applicable to the broader information security community. And this is a message that we have been getting out to the community. Um, but most of all, remember that it will be all right and happy hacking. So thank you. And those are two papers. I think the slides will be online so you can pick up the papers later. We'll, we can make them available. We have two unclassified papers that are related to this work. One talk about the results that I summarized in a little bit more detail. And then the other paper talks about the, um, the cyber operations stress survey, which is the methodology that we use to study our people. We can post the paper with the video. OK, great. So. Um, I guess, are there any questions? Please remember to turn your mic on if you have a question. Yes, sir. So um, this was an ecological observational study. And um, I'm kind of curious if you're doing follow-up work in any way to try and do anything beyond just that. Or like, where are you going from from here, I guess, is my question. Yes. So um, Follow-on studies are something that we've thought about uh, just because of the reorganization with the Cybersecurity Directorate and the shuffling of missions and processes. We've tried to leave that alone until it stabilizes where we have all the people in the right places and we're back to, I mean, we're still do it's still business as usual, but there's just artificial stress from a reorg. Uh, because we don't want to measure the stress from the reorg, we want to, to measure the stress from operations. Um, I do have a colleague in Cyber Command who is interested in this from a happiness and wellness perspective. Cyber Command has very similar but different types of operations that they run on net. And so we've been talking about different ways that we can um, translate this work into some of the Cyber Command operations in order to continue the work as well. Yes, ma'am. Uh, am I audible? Am I audible? I, I can hear you, okay. yes. Uh, so my question is, uh, like, you had those operators um, to work upon, to study upon. But for me, as a PhD student, so if I, I want to do a human-centric study on hackers, of course, hackers are not going to fill survey form for me. And that's... I mean, I, I'm still in first year, but I, um, uh, aspire, I aspire to study hackers, so how can I do that? Yes, that is um, a question that I get a lot, especially from people in industry. Um, I am certainly in a unique 
environment where I have the people available, somewhat of a, a captive audience. Um, that is, that's probably why there isn't a lot of this type of research because access to people is difficult. Um, we also have a unique mission at the agency itself. So there are companies that um, provide different types of security services that have um, uh, like on net um, uh, operations that do pen testing or vulnerability analysis. And depending on what you mean by hacker, so is it the happy hacker for the sake of knowledge or other types of hackers, um, that would also skew your population. The challenge is finding a company who is willing to let you in to study their people. Um, and that's probably the biggest complaint that I hear from graduate students who want to study people who are actually doing. Um, I would say a good place to start would start at some of the CTFs. So there's th it's still an artificial environment, but um, they're employing a lot of the, the same techniques just for different purposes. It's on an abbreviated schedule, but the stress would be there. If you can find an internship or partnership with a company who provides these types of services and then work your way in to propose a research study, that's another way of doing it. Um, and then uh, there are other types of um, opportunities. So for example, at universities, they might have smaller teams but you have a large university network that also has to do network defense, that also has to secure their own network. And so there might be an opportunity for you to study the people here at the university or across multiple universities. So those are, those are a couple ideas of where you might be able to find people who are actually doing the work in a realistic uh, environment. Anyone else? Yes, sir. Did you see anything that kind of stood out with your so with your cohort, as opposed to other TLX studies, uh, you know, is there anything that really stood out in this group as that being distinct? That relationship between frustration and performance was surprising to us and that there was such a strong link between those things, but it didn't really have an impact on the other factors. Um, that I had not seen that in other TLX studies where those two factors kind of broke away from, from everything else. I, I attribute that really to the operational environment and the value that our operators put on being successful in mission, which is unique to high risk, um, high reward operations like that. Thank you again. Okay, thank you.